Well, I've got 6.30, so we'll, uh, we'll kind of get going. I know there's a Fostering Hope meeting, so maybe a few more folks will wander in uh, with that. Um, let's go ahead and we'll begin with a prayer, if that's all right. Father, we thank you for just the blessing of being able to fellowship tonight. We ask that you bless the time that we might learn more of you and just see your, your wonder as you've worked through the centuries. Uh, we thank you for the health that we have, and we do keep in mind those who are uh, struggling with health concerns right now. We ask a, a sense of comfort and peace, and we uh, just thank you for how you have given us the hope of heaven, and we ask this through Christ. Amen. All right, so thank you for coming. The title probably is a little confusing. <coughs> on reflections on the road to Emmaus. When we talk about the road to Emmaus, what am I referencing there, just to see if we have anybody with any clue? Okay, so in Luke, we have a couple disciples on the way to Emmaus. And, and the part that is curious is where Jesus says, and we'll get to this here in a bit, but kind of as a prelude, Jesus uh, began with Moses and the prophets and explained himself to those two disciples using the Old Testament. So the question then becomes is, well, how does the Old Testament really tell us about Jesus and, and his work? Most of us, if we were challenged to, can you tell me about Jesus, we probably don't turn to Deuteronomy as our first choice. Um, that's just not kind of where we go. So uh, really it's, it's, it's the subtitle is Hearing the Echoes of the Old Testament in the Gospels. We're going to be limited to just the Gospels. So kind of a, a ring a bell moment. You know, if somebody says, hey, gives you a name, does that ring a bell? So this right here, in regard to race relations, we must strive for unity. We must have a dream that we can all live together as one race, that of humanity, all created equal by our God. Anything in that ring a bell? And if not, the premise for the class kind of goes away and we'll have pizza and lemonade next week. So somebody's got to help me out here. Anything ring a bell there? Say that again. We're all of the human race. Anything else? Say that again. You saved the class. Okay, well, you saved the class. How many see that now? And refer back to Martin Luther King. Absolutely, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And that's just the three words there. I don't have I have a dream, just, just that phraseology. Anything else there that maybe rings a bell? And what bell does that ring? Very good. Our Declaration of Independence. Anybody see that relationship now? So absolutely. So what was my intent in referencing that? The intent is that 
we kind of think back to the Dr. King speech. We think back to the Declaration of Independence and how that has formed our nation. And maybe even we go back and we read Dr. King's speech or we read the Declaration of Independence. So there's that connection that we're drawing. And, and we see that. We do that, right? Um, if I mention the term deflate gate, who could give me a synopsis? Ken? Okay. So Tom Brady and, and maybe some unsavory actions potentially. What about Whitewater Gate? Who would that relate to? Clintons. The Clintons. Okay. Why do we use the term gate? Where, where, how's that? Because of? Because of Watergate. Right. So anything now that ends in gate, it talks about a scandal. Do we have to explain that? No. We know that because we all share the same history. We have a shared culture. So it's very easy for us to, to use a term or to, to use a series of terms, and, and that kicks off some memories for us. Now, if we made that same phrase in Guatemala, would they understand the connection? No. Uh, it's a different language. It may not even translate the same. And they don't share the same culture. So how would they understand it? So if we, if we, if our brothers are listening to this in Chichi tonight, how would they understand what we're talking about? Maybe Kimmel? Maybe Kimmel could explain it. Why? Because Kimmel understands the culture. He's coming from there. Could a Guatemalan have studied 1960s American history or Declaration of Independence history and see that? Yes. So it takes a lot of study for that. Well, the same is true for us as we read through the Gospels in recognizing those hints or echoes. Now then, here's, and here's kind of a, to me, a caveat or a main point to consider. If a Guatemalan reads that top paragraph, can they still understand what is being said? Yes. But having that shared culture or having that history adds a depth or a richness or a better or maybe a fuller understanding and kind of brings some more detail into it that may be missed. So can we read the Gospels and totally have no understanding of any Old Testament reference and still understand what's going on? Yes. I'm not saying that we can't. But if we see those references, my feeling is it can add to the depth that what we're seeing and might can help explain some of the, the things that we read. So that's really the goal. Um, yeah, so the Gospels use the, the same technique. All four Gospels will hit to passages in the Old Testament in order to give their listeners, readers, insight into the current events and the, the teachings or the person of Jesus. And we often need hints to help to see those hints. Why? Well, we're not immersed in the Old Testament. Most of us probably don't have uh, Leviticus memorized. Okay? It was, it's not been on our recent reading list. So the references are, are not easy for us to recall. Some passages, yes, but most of them probably not. 
In hindsight, though, this is our adopted story since we are adopted into uh, the family of Christ, so that's why it is good for us. The goals of the class are to begin to see the references of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament in the New Covenant so that our ears are open as we read through the story. We may be now able to kind of look and see some of those hints, have a renewed appreciation of how the Hebrew Bible has shaped the New Covenant, spur us to invest more time in its study, and to gain a richer understanding of Jesus and how the gospel writers presented him to their audience. So recognize again, the gospel writers are telling a story. So they're telling a story about an individual, and they're needing to um, kind of footnote the story. But no, they didn't have footnotes. They didn't have highlights or yellow or underlining. So how could they alert their listeners to certain events or help explain things? Well, by using those hints or echoes uh, to the Old Testament. Uh, these are just the source materials. Uh, the, the top two would be the main ones, and then the bottom three, and again, uh, various other um, articles and resources, but that's, that's kind of where it's coming from. Um, so a couple of housekeeping things. If um, most of the slides are going to be scriptures, that I'm referencing just for convenience. Um, by the nature of the class, we're going between New Testament and Old Testament pretty quickly. That's kind of the whole crux of the class here, seeing the difference between the two. You're welcome to follow along in yours, uh, but again, getting between the two, especially when we start hitting some Zephaniahs and Zacharias and we kind of have to go table of contents to know where to find them, um, it, it could get a little slow. So just know that. Um, if I do not reference the translation, assume it's New American Standard 1995, that version there. That's mostly true. Are there times I forgot to maybe switch back to that version and copied it into the slide? Yeah, that happened. Um, but for the most part, recognize New American Standard unless otherwise um, referenced there. Just flip. Probably because my first few slides were that one, and I didn't want to go back and change anything else. And and it's a it's a it's a fairly well known translation, fairly good translation. It, it tends more towards um, a more it tends towards a literal. We'll talk about translations in a in a future class, um, but it's it's just kind of one that maybe more middle of the road between phrase translating the phrase or translating the word so there are texts that are recognized as prophecy we don't really have to guess about that so there are certain texts that we can come in and say yeah this is a, a, a prophecy um, Matthew 2 1 after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod king, king, behold, Magi from the east arrived, saying, Where is he who's been born of the king, uh, born king of the Jews? Herod heard this, he was troubled, gathered the chief priests and scribes, and he asked the question. What was the question? Where's the Messiah going to be born? How did they answer that question? They said, Bethlehem of Judea, for what has been written by the prophet? 
And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for from you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. Now, again, just a little bit of housekeeping, for at least for New American Standard, their, um, their typical way of letting you know something is coming from the Old Testament is they'll have the type in all uppercase. Okay, so that's their method, their publisher's method of giving you a hint. Okay, did Matthew write that in all uppercase? No, Matthew. Well, yes, I think Greek was all uppercase. So, um, yes, he did, but everything was written all uppercase. So, um, so that's one of the advantages we have, common error, era of, uh, of having that kind of type font to let us know. But notice the, the, the scribes, Go to the Old Testament. They go to the prophet. It is Micah 5.2 that they're going to. But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His times of, uh, of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So we recognize that there are passages in the Old Testament that the Jewish scribes, Jewish scholars, understood as prophecy, foretelling a future event regarding the Messiah. Now, you notice if we look at Matthew's quote and we look at Micah, we'll say, yeah, he's really not quite word for word. That's not his intent. It is just to kind of get get the thoughts across. So we don't often see them quoting word for word. The other thing to recognize is that more than likely, Matthew would be looking at or have reference to the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. By that, I mean the Greek version of the Old Testament. Micah would have written it in Hebrew. However, in Alexandria, they had some scribes or or some scholars translate from Hebrew to Greek. That became known as the Septuagint version. And for a lot of what we'll be doing is we will be comparing what is said in the Gospels written in Greek to what was written in the Septuagint, also written in Greek. So now we kind of get more of an apples-to-apples look at things and how words or phrases um, and you may have heard that Septuagint is because 70 scholars got together and they all went into 70 separate rooms, produced a document, and there was no errors between, no difference between them. That's a myth. That did not happen. We couldn't get two people in a room with one verse and not have differences, okay? So, uh, and, and they, they kept refining that. But just know the Septuagint is probably what Matthew's in reference to. In, in regards to that, although at times there could have been uh, what we call the Masoretic text or the Hebrew text that they were referencing. Uh, Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee, power of the Spirit. Um, he began teaching in their synagogues, and he came to Nazareth. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the pure, poor, sent me to proclaim release to captives and recover the sight of the blind. Um, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he said what? Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
What is Jesus letting us know? He's letting us know that this prophet, this uh, portion of Isaiah, which is Isaiah 61, is a prophecy of the Messiah. And he is fulfilling that. He is bringing that to completion. You can see what Isaiah 61 says. Again, it's, it's pretty close to what, um, what Luke records. So we have passages in the Old Testament that are recognized as Old Testament prophecies. But are all the Old Testament prophecies direct? This, this obvious? Or, can we see Jesus in the Old Testament through various hints that the writer gives us, much like I did at the very beginning, where we have uh, the I have a dream and that re- references back. Um, so let's get to the kind of the the foundation encounter here, the road to Emmaus, Luke twenty four. So behold, on that very day, what day are we talking about? Somebody's got to know this one. What day? Resurrection day. Okay. Beginning to get a little nervous here, but that's all right. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem, talking to each other. Uh, Jesus approaches them, begins traveling with them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said, hey, so what are y'all talking about? That's the southern version. They came to a stop. They looked sad. So Cleopas goes, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? Now, as an aside, have you ever asked a question that in hindsight you'd really like to take back? It's probably one of those questions. Because he asked the only person in Jerusalem who really did know what was going on. So, but at this point, Cleopas is in the dark here. Jesus says, well, what, what things are you talking about? Because Jesus, the Nazarene, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. We were hoping he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But now it's the third day. Some women left us bewildered. They saw the tomb, and his body was not there. And they said they had seen a vision of angels. So we see the discouragement of the disciples. And we see them recounting what, what their feeling of the events were of, of these last three years. So they kind of summarize this as we recognized Jesus as a prophet. We recognized him as being from God. We really thought he was going to redeem us, redeem Israel. Jesus says what? You foolish men and slow of heart to believe, here's the key, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and come into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. 
Moses would refer to the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament. Prophets would refer to, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, again, we talked about this a year ago last fall, so the Jewish Bible would be called the Tanakh, stands for Torah, Ketuvim, uh, Nev- Torah, Nevaim, Ketuvim. The Nevaim being the prophets, Ketuvim being the over- other writings. And the prophets would have con- been considered Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Okay, We consider those historical. They would be considered the early prophets. And then we would have uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and then the other, and then the twelfth, uh, the minor prophets, what we would call, and then the other writings being Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, and Chronicles. Chronicles would not have been considered a part of the prophets. So Jesus is, is dividing the Old Testament up into Moses and the prophets, and then he in essence says all scriptures. So that would in, in essence be the whole Hebrew Bible. And he says, they, they talk about me. And if there was ever a conversation that I kind of wish Luke had given us a little more detail on, this is probably the one it would have made this class a whole lot easier had we had the text of that. But we do see the premise, don't we? That we can go to the Old Testament and see things about Jesus. So let's go here. Um, and, and the key phrase in this is the redemption of Israel. So recognize the story of Jesus is a redemption story. And if we think of a redemption story, what do we need to go back to in the Old Testament? What is a redemption, the the big redemption story there? How to think. Think who would be if we go back to maybe Egypt and maybe the second book, any more clues needed now? The Exodus. And you'll have to talk loud. I do have my hearing aids, but it's still, oh well. So yeah, we go. that's taking us back to Exodus. Again, that was the redemption of Israel. God redeeming them out of slavery into uh, the promised land. So we're seeing that story continued with Jesus. And that, that was their hope. And again, Jesus is saying, all the scriptures testify um, about me. Again, if we go to uh, John uh, chapter 5, and just again, more evidence that Jesus is saying... Hey, you search the scriptures, you examine the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet those scriptures testify about me. So what if the Old Testament? The Old Testament is a testimony about Jesus. And then down to verse 48, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So we know we can go to Moses and find hints about Jesus. So when we talk about the hints, we're going to start with one right here. Um, the way we're going to move through the study is we're going to go through Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Why that order? Most scholars think Mark was written first, chronologically. 
Um, and then Matthew uh, kind of took Mark and made a few changes, kind of, but kind of used Mark's overall structure. Luke then did the same, possibly having Matthew available. And then John kind of wrote his uh, separate from the others. So we're going in an order of what most assume would be the chronological writings of the New Testament. But here in Luke, Luke gives us a strange phrase here. He says, um, after Jesus, they reclined at table. He took the bread, blessed it, breaking it. He began giving it to him. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So let's think back. What about that phrase, their eyes were opened? Does that ring any bells to anybody? Well, Paul's future, we're looking backwards. If I had a Snickers, you'd get one. Maybe I need to start bringing them. Second Kings 6. Now the attendant of the man of God had risen early, gone out. Behold, an army of our horses, chariots, circled the city. Servant said to him, this is hopeless, my master. What are we going to do? He said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes so that they may see. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes, and he saw. So Luke here is calling us back to this story with Elisha. What did Jesus do? Jesus prayed. Their eyes were open. What Elisha did? Elisha prayed. And their eyes were opened. So what we see is that what Luke is saying is, you know, Jesus is a type of Elisha. He is a type of one of the main prophets in the Old Testament. So if we go back and look at the life of Elisha and some of the things that he did, we see that Jesus is in that type. What did the, what did these two guys just say a little earlier? That Jesus was a prophet. So Luke is in essence reaffirming that to us uh, in this text. So we'll be looking at allusions, hints, echoes, um, and we're going to restrict our study to just the Gospels. Uh, to, to add in Paul's writings would just be way more than uh, we could handle. But notice these, these links. Um, again, we look for how, how Jesus may have instructed his disciples uh, as he was telling them about it. If I were to put it in current terminology, we might say that these are hyperlinks. So do we know what a hyperlink is? Jeff? It's a uh, embedded URL that you can uh, click on and go straight to. Another source or something yeah. like that, yeah. So for those of you who may be reading a web page and you see something in blue or blue underlined, and you just thought that was nice and pretty and colorful, you'll now know that's actually a hyperlink. I click on that, I may go to something else and get more information. That's what John, uh, Luke did for us here, is he gave us a little hyperlink that sends us back to Second Kings. Very good. <laughs> so, yes. Second point to consider, resurrection changed everything. Once the resurrection happened, that changed 
um, how the Old Testament is viewed. And before the resurrection, there are things that the disciples heard and saw, and they were just clueless, as we would have been. But after the resurrection, so notice, um, again, it's with hindsight. And we had that advantage of hindsight because we could see all of it um, in one setting. They're, they're living this out in real time, much more difficult. But in hindsight, so John, John 13, Jesus began washing their disciples' feet, wiping them. He came to Peter and said, Lord, you're washing my feet. Jesus said to him, Peter, you know what? You don't get it right now. But you will understand later. John 2. Uh, the Passover of the Jews were there. Jesus went to Jerusalem, uh, temple grounds. He found those selling, uh, selling oxen. And then, you know, he um, overturns the tables. And notice what in 17. After the resurrection... What does is, what is John tell us? That then the disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. We'll get to this one later on. But just to know that, that the disciples too were going, we don't understand some of this. And then later on in hindsight, as they look back at the Old Testament, they can now see how some of those passages, is that a prophetic passage? Zeal for your house will consume. It's really not a prophecy like we saw in Micah. But it helps us understand who Jesus is. And then, uh, again, John 2 again, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, hey, it took us 46 years to build it. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So kind of a parenthetical statement here by John. So when he was raised from the dead, what does John say? After the resurrection, the disciples remembered that he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken. So our premise is that the Old Testament contains information about Jesus that's not often observed or, you know, right out in front of us, and that by by seeing the resurrection and looking backwards, we can now, in essence, reread the Old Testament with a new understanding of how it may apply to Jesus. So we're going to start in Mark. That's why we're going to Isaiah, right? So here in Mark... But first, look, um, Isaiah 63. And again, this uh, CJB would be the complete Jewish Bible as far as the translation. So, Lord, why do you let us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes who were your possession, your holy people, held your sanctuary such a short time before our adversaries trampled it down. For so long we have been like those you never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. What is Isaiah's prayer? What is Isaiah asking for God to do? We wish you would tear open heaven and come down 
so the mountains would shake at your presence. So again, Isaiah, major prophet. All the, you know, Jews are going to know this. They're going to be very familiar with this prayer of Isaiah. So Mark 1, 9, New American Standard. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming out at the water, he saw the heavens open, the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, voice from heaven, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And we look at that and we go, mm, maybe, yeah, kinda, I, I, I kinda see that. You know, there's a heavens open and, and God coming down. Here's where we get into the point that different translations can give us different pictures. When we look at this same verse in the complete Jewish Bible, this translation, shortly thereafter, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was immersed by in the, in the uh, Jordan by John. Immediately upon coming out of the water, he saw heaven torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. That's a more accurate representation of what Mark says. When we look at the Greek behind this, Matthew and Luke, they just say, hey, the heavens were open, just like the New American Standard translated it. But when we look at Mark, the Greek is more accurate in saying he saw heaven torn open. And when we look at the Septuagint back to Isaiah, it's the same phrase. So what is Mark telling us by using the same phrase? Mark here at the very beginning of his story is saying Isaiah's Prayer is answered. That's what my story is going to be about. And it's, it's identical, isn't it? We wish you would come down with heaven tear open and come down. He says, I saw heaven torn open and the spirit coming down. Isaiah, well, I'm going to go more than more than a thousand. Is it going to be more than a thousand, or is it going to be five or six hundred? I'm thinking more like eight hundred. Okay, five to five to eight hundred. <laughs> long enough. But the Jews would have known this prayer of Isaiah, and and again, Mark is writing to a Jewish audience, so that's Mark's clue to say, here's the story I'm about to tell you. And it's the story of Isaiah's prayer being answered. Mark 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So here Mark kind of, he just tells us right off, this is Isaiah. Behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
So he's actually reading from or, or referencing Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make straight the desert in the highway for our God. In Isaiah, who is, who's Isaiah talking about? Who was making the path straight in the desert? Who was leading the children of Israel? I guess we should have gone backwards and said, what is he referring to even in this event? Okay. So who's doing the leading? God is doing the leading. So he's referencing that. Just keep that in mind. And again, what is Isaiah referencing back to? Okay, we have here Isaiah is actually a hyperlink back to what story? Short-term memory here. Going back to the Exodus story. Back to the redemption story. Also in... Um, in Exodus, behold, I'm going to send an angel or messenger uh, before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into a place I have prepared. Be attentive and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your rebellion since my name is in him. Again, Jesus, God is saying, I am leading you, uh, preparing the way. And then we have in Malachi, behold, I am sending my messenger. He will clear away before me. The Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. So we have these passages that are all referencing a messenger, and that's what Mark is referencing here, is the messenger is coming, and... Um, and again, in, in Malachi 4.5, we get a little more information. Behold, I am sending you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So who is the messenger that is coming? It's not Elijah reincarnated, but it's going to be somebody like Elijah. It's going to be a prophet who is like Elijah. When you see him, that messenger is coming. And who's coming after that? The Lord is coming after that. Again, early in Mark, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching baptism of repentance. Country of Judea was going for him. They were all being baptized him and then rejoined, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet was locusts and honey. And I go, really, Mark? It matters what he's, I mean, the fashion statement matters. I mean, do we have Mark going, oh, John the Baptist with a nice camel hair ensemble and a Jordanian leather belt around. Where else do we get a description of what someone's wearing? We never get, well, Jesus centered the wedding of Cana and had a nice blue and white tunic. So, why, Mark? Why would you tell us what John looks like? Well, let's think. Anybody else that we're told what they look like? Oh. Second Kings. Messengers returned to Ahaza. Why have you returned? Man came up to meet us. Go return to the king. This is what the Lord says. And he, uh, the king asked them, 
this guy look like? They said, he's a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. King goes, that's Elijah. So what has Mark told us by describing how John is dressed? This Here's Elijah. Yeah. So this is... This is Mark's way of letting his listeners know who already knew the prophecy of Elijah being the messenger who's coming. Mark has now told them, this is Elijah. So what does that mean? You better be prepared because the great and coming day of the Lord is now here. And see, we, we kind of blow over that and not recognize the significance of why Mark was telling us how he's dressed. It's to confirm to his listeners, this really is the Elijah that I'm talking about. Um, often in Mark, we see some judgment. We, uh, we, we're familiar with this passage. Um, after being taken into custody, uh, Jesus came to Galilee, and John had been taken to custody. Uh, he goes along to see Galilee, sees John, Simon, and Andrew casting their net. Jesus says, follow me. And this phrase, I will make you fishers of men. And we look at that, and how do we say that? We say, oh, instead of catching fish, now they're going to catch men for Jesus. So we all need to be these fishers who go out and catch people for Jesus. And, we, and that's how we kind of interpret that, because that's how we view fishing, is you go out and catch something. How would the Jews have understood this phrase, though? When we look in Jeremiah, Ted just finished a class there. Jeremiah says, Behold, I am going to send many fishermen, declares the Lord. And they will fish for them, and afterward I will send many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their wrongdoing concealed from my eyes. I will first repay them double for their wrongdoing and their sin. Because they have defiled my land, they have filled my inheritance with carcasses and their detestable idols and abominations. What are these fishermen doing? They're executing judgment. Okay. Amos 4.1 uh, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. You just can't get any more complimentary than that, probably. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, um, who exploit the poor, oppress the need, say to their husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord is sworn by his holiness, for behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go through the holes in the walls, one in front of the other, and you will be hurled to Harmon, declares the Lord. Does it sound like these fishermen are just catching people for Jesus? The call of the apostles is you're, you're going to be bringing judgment. Now, can we interpret it 
as the way we've seen it, that we're bringing people in. Yes, is there anything wrong with that? No. But recognize that in their eyes, when Jesus says you're going to be fishers of men, there's a judgment element to what Jesus is calling them to. Tim? Their message was going to divide people, and some will be rejecting their message. So are they executing the judgment? No. But are they bringing about um, a, a judgment on people who are going to refuse Jesus as the Messiah? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. How much? <laughs> You know, I could be gone by Sonic afterwards. So. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember where in, in the New Testament it says the apostles will, will sit in judgment. Um, I, I hear you, and that can be your homework. Okay. Mark 11. And again, it, it, it's not going to be where we kind of just move through the, the Gospels in a in a chapter-by-chapter basis. basis. We are kind of trying to take it somewhat topically. Um, They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who were buying and selling, um, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. He began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You have made it a robber's den. Chief priests and scribes heard this, began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. So for that, we go back to Isaiah 56. Here Isaiah writes, Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to attend to his service and love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath so as not to profane it, holds it firmly to my covenant, even those who I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, I will gather others to them, those already to those already gathered. What had happened at the time of Jesus that caused this outbreak from him? Well, the court of Gentiles, where those who were not Jews could come to the temple, had been cluttered up with merchants who were selling um, sacrificial lambs. Again, if I'm coming from Galilee and I need to offer sacrifice, I've got my perfect lamb there. What's the chance of that perfect lamb making a three or four day journey from Galilee and not stubbing its toe on something and now becoming a not perfect lamb? So for those who were away from Jerusalem, the law made um, an occasion that they could sell their lamb, take that money, and then come to Jerusalem, buy their lamb there. Because uh, the money's not going to stub its toe, and that's fine. But they had so cluttered up the court of Gentiles that now, though the Gentiles could not come in and worship God as was intended. 
So Jesus, Mark here is, is referring back to this Isaiah passage where Isaiah says, my house will be a house of prayer and it will welcome all peoples. Mark is giving us a hint here also that says this is not going to be strictly a Jewish thing. The Gentiles are going to be uh, incorporated in with the message of Jesus. Also in Zechariah, Again, the complete Jewish Bible renders it this way. Uh, when the days come, this will be written on the bells worn by the horses consecrated to the Lord. Cooking pots in the house of the Lord will be uh, as holy as sprinkling bowls before the altar. Yes, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be consecrated to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who offers sacrifices will come, take them, use them to stew meat. When that day comes, there will no longer be merchants in the house of of the Lord of hosts. And what so Mark is referencing both of these passages to, to speak and to justify what Jesus has done and to reference it back. And let's kind of again as a little bit of an aside, when we talk about this, when we see this reference in Isaiah 56, Mark is not expecting us to go back and just read that verse. His expectation is we we read 55, 56, 57. Uh, again, Isaiah didn't have that. But you understand, we, he wants us to, to get the whole context of what was going on. And that's the challenge for us. Um, we see some of these cross-references in our Bibles. A lot of our Bibles have those footnotes and, and cross-references. We tend to read right by those or just skip right through the numbers. But the challenge that Mark is giving us is, no, he wants us to go back and, and recognize what is this event remembering. And, and that slows down our reading, but it should up our comprehension some. Uh, again, same passage, but we're going to go to the next uh, phrase here. My house shall not be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Again, that passage goes back to Jeremiah 7. Okay? The temple speech by Jeremiah. So Jeremiah goes into the temple and he makes this speech. Hear the word of the Lord, all Judea, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. And um, let's come down to. For if you truly amend your ways and deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, you do not shed innocent blood um, to this place, nor walk after other gods in your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place. Verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear, offer sacrifices to Baal, walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? No. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Again, we have another Old Testament passage that refers back to another Old Testament passage, right? Verse, um, verse 9. What does verse 9 refer to? goes right back. Not all are listed, but goes right back to the Ten Commandments. Um, 
would continue, we call it maybe the Decalogue, the Ten Words. That's how Deuteronomy actually describes it as the Ten Words. So we're referencing back to, again, what story? The Exodus story. So, um, so Jeremiah is referencing Exodus and then saying, has this house been called become a den of robbers in your sight? So that's the key phrase there. But if we go to the next verse in Jeremiah, again, that's kind of my point is, we're not looking at just that verse, we're looking at the context around that verse. Jeremiah continues on, Go to my place which was in Shiloh, where I made a name to dwell at the first, and see that I did it, uh, what I did to it, because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Uh, verse 14, Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. So Jeremiah says, hey, you've made my house a den of robbers. What's going to happen? I'm going to do to it what I did to your house in Shiloh. And our first question is, well, what happened to your house in Shiloh? So now we've got to figure that out. Well, we figure that out by going to Psalms. They provoked him with their high places, aroused his jealousy. When God heard, he was filled with wrath, greatly abhorred Israel, so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh. So that's what Jeremiah is talking about. God abandoning this place. So when Mark, or when, when Jesus says, you've made my house a robber's den, what is he telling them about the temple? It's about to be destroyed. And that's why the chief priests and were so upset. Because they knew this reference. They knew what Jeremiah had said was going to happen when God's house became that of a robber's den. So Jesus is foretelling here the destruction of the temple. And, and they, they are not real happy about that. Again, very quickly, um, we have the, the encounter with the fig tree. We've often kind of look at that and go, that's kind of an odd one, but uh, Jesus says to this fig tree, hey, nobody's going to eat from you again. What, what, the, you know, what happened to the fig tree? Passed by in the morning, the fig tree had withered from the roots up. Well, what's that about? Jeremiah 8 were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They were certainly not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Uh, therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down. I will snatch them away. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the tree. The leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. Let me go back real quick here. So, again... <clears throat> Jesus is, is recalling just very visually this fig tree reference and taking them back to Jeremiah and the words that which Jeremiah spoke to the children of Israel. So that's the image that he has in mind as we interpret what he's doing on the road to Jerusalem and striking down this fig tree. He's simply giving them a very visual reminder of Jeremiah and Jeremiah's warnings. We'll kind of be closing with this. I think our time will be <clears throat> be close here. Mark twelve one, parable of the, the wicked tenants. <clears throat> 
He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put up a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press, built a tower, rented it out. Harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers to receive the produce. They took him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed, sent another. They did the same thing. Uh, sent another. They killed him. Uh, they kept beating and killing all those. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all, saying, They'll respect my son. Vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Through, um, come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. They took him, killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. So what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. He will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? And Mark quotes the scripture here. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So we look at this, and, and what we're going to see are just all of the various references that Jesus is giving in this parable. Did Jesus use this technique also? Did Jesus drop hints about himself and others and what he was saying? Yes. It's not just the gospel writers. That was their way of teaching. So here Jesus is dropping some hints for us. The first one, again, we see it in all caps, so we kind of know, hey, that probably is coming from the Old Testament. Um, so from that, that comes from Isaiah 5.1. Again, we would want to read all of Isaiah to get the context. But here he says, let me sing a song now for my well-beloved, a song for my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug around it, removed stones, planted the vine, built a tower, hewed out a wine vat. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So right now Jesus is saying, okay guys, let's go back to Isaiah and recognize the story that Isaiah is giving us. And we see what? We see some beat a slave, all of the slave, you know, the messenger beatings right there. Jeremiah 7. Again, we, we've been in Jeremiah 7 already. So we're coming back there. That's, is that an important one? Yes, that's a big one. Since the day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, again, the Exodus story, until this day, I have sent you all my servants and the prophets, daily rising early and sending them, that you did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. Jesus is going back to this encounter with Jeremiah and saying, hey, here's the story. Here's what you did to all the prophets. So what, is the, what does the owner say? He had one more to send, a beloved son. That one should ring some bells for us. Okay, who would be a beloved son? Well, the one story that we probably is mainly referenced here is the story of Abraham. What is the story of Abraham? God tested Abraham, said, Abraham, here am I. Take now your son, your only son, and the key phrase, whom you love. So uh, Jesus is, is portraying himself here in this role of Isaac whom Abraham is to sacrifice. We see this phrase in two other cases. You recall those in the New Testament or in the Gospels, whom you love. We saw one, baptism, the other, transfiguration. Okay, And right here in this story, yeah, we have the baptism and transfiguration. I'm going to do it in, in sign language. Um, so, Again, Jesus is starting to tie or chain these events together. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Ring a bell. 
Only one time in the Old Testament. Huh? Okay. Genesis 37, when they saw him, Joseph, coming from a distance, before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one or other, here comes this dreamer, now then, come, let us kill him. Throw him into the pits. What has Jesus done here? Jesus has said, I am a, a type of Joseph. Who was Joseph? Joseph was a, was he a favored son? Uh, most definitely. Was he hated by his brothers? Was he thrown into a pit? Where did Joseph go? Egypt. Where did Jesus go as a child? Egypt. They were both brought out of Egypt. What is Joseph um, the beginning of? How, what, what was Joseph considered once he were, gained power? What did he do for his family? Save them. He redeemed them. Okay? So when we read the story of Joseph, we now see a figure of Jesus. And, and this is, um, this is an exact quotation that Mark is, that Jesus uses coming back from Genesis. Um, and then the stone the builders rejected, we see again, that's in all caps. So that's going from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. Marvelous in our eyes. We know the next verse, don't we? We sing it. But how often have we tied it to the verse before? And it's importance in the story of Jesus. Um, and again, Psalm 118, it would be a psalm of praise, a psalm of the, some of the Hallel songs that they sang as they went up to Jerusalem. So what we see is when we look at the parable of the tenants, all of these references are helping us understand this parable in the context of the Old Testament to give us a little more understanding of how we interpret this and see Jesus in this parable. So again, that's all the that's all the Old Testament passages um, kind of brought together on one page. So that's our first part of Mark here. Next week, as we go through Mark, we're going to see the references to Jesus as the Davidic King, the glorified Son of Man, the God of Israel, and the crucified Messiah, and how some of the Old Testament passages help us in in kind of enhancing that view or that portrait of Jesus that Mark is trying to paint for his listeners. So two minutes over, pretty good. Um, appreciate you being here, and uh, hopefully see you next week. Jeff? Matthew 19.27, they would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. Homework complete. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.